Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to More Than Amused Podcast, a podcast all about women and the arts, hosted by Stani and Sadie. Join us as we explore what it's like being a female artist, examine modern day problems, and educate ourselves and you on important and forgotten female artists of the past. Hello, welcome back to More Than Amused Podcast. I'm Sadie. And I'm Stani, and happy 2023. I know we already had an episode, but this is like our official recording episode of the new year. So that's really exciting. We're in a new year. I'm excited. And right before we actually started recording, we were just talking about the amazing Dolly Parton and Miley Cyrus New Year special. So, so good. I loved it. It was amazing. You actually watched it while it was happening. I did. And I'm not going to lie, like, it was very emotional for me. It was so, like, the wrecking ball into I Will Always Love You. Yes. Like, I was incredible. Dolly does, like, that line change instead of, like, I Will Always Want You. She's like, I Will Always Love You. And I just, like, turned to Jordan. I was like, they're going to do it. They're going to do it. And then it went into that song. It It was was so so good. good. It actually made me so emotional. Like, Mm -hmm. obviously, Dolly is her godmother. She calls herself her fairy godmother, which I love. It's so Dolly. And Mm -hmm. I think especially for you, like, of course, it was so emotional. That's literally like your childhood and like your adulthood kind of like together. Like, like you love Dolly and like Miley so much. It was a big deal for me. What what a beautiful way to bring in the new year, I think. The hard part for me, though, is that I was like, well, that's the peak. Like, how do you top that (laughs) next year? Like, true. Like, you can't. I really think that Dolly needs to keep doing it with her. I agree. Like, that was so fun. And they even did a little bit after. I mean, granted, we were watching it live. And so their midnight was our 11 p.m. because it was based on Eastern time. But then afterwards, like, went on and they did a couple of, like, just funny sketches. Yeah, Dolly's just so funny. And then they sang Jolene together, which, of course. I saw that one, too. That was amazing. Mm -hmm. Because Miley does have, like, kind of a rock version of Jolene on her live album. Okay. I was not like a Hannah Montana fan growing up, but like I am obsessed with Miley Cyrus now because Mm -hmm. I love like a good rock music that's like still girly and all of the covers she's done that are on her live album. I listen to those over and over and over again. They're some of my most played songs. Yeah, it's like my favorite album ever to work out to. Also, have you seen her like the YouTube video in the backyard of her covering Jolene? Oh, I don't know. I assume I probably have at some point, but I don't remember. I'm sending it, it to well. you right now so you can watch after we record. And if anyone very who excited. is listening has not seen that. I mean, I've been a Miley fan forever and this video came out 10 years ago. And so I, I've been well aware of everything this woman has done since I was a small child. So love that. anyways, you should watch that. But I agree. The live album is so good. And I listen to it a lot. All of her covers. And she announced she has a new album coming out soon, right? Yes, she does. Very very excited about that i know because her last album was so good i also had one more thing in our last week's episode we were talking all about books and like 
celebrities and influencers and everything. I totally forgot that Reese Witherspoon has a book club. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. And then, like, today, my cousin tagged me in one of her giveaways and was like, oh, it's never led me astray. And I got sucked down into this, like, hole of Reese Witherspoon's book club. Mm-hmm. And what I love is that, like, on her... Instagram for it. She talks about how she picks books every single month that have a woman at the center of the story, which of Mm, course uh we completely get behind. But also I realized that she takes a bunch of the books that they cover that she really likes and produces the shows on them. Oh, like it's her studio that's doing Mm -hmm. these. So she did where the crawdads sing and now she's doing Daisy Jones and the six. Oh, I didn't realize she was doing that. Yeah, it's on her website. It comes in March to Prime Video, but like she's producing Daisy Joan and the Six. Then it was a previous book they read. I mean, that's the goal right there. That's the more than a muse goal. (laughs) Right? And then I think she also did Little Fires Everywhere, which is another book that they had read previously. So basically like... That is my favorite book ever, by the way. (laughs) Oh, really? That's awesome. Yeah, I I love that book. Anyway, I was scrolling through her picks and I found a bunch that like we're definitely going to want to read. And what I love is that they're all fiction, but I feel like they have like a lot of educational takes to them. And yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is really fun because a lot of the times what's hard with the podcast is we want to read a lot of nonfiction because it has to do with our topic, but then sometimes it can be a little dry or like hard to get through or like really long. Yeah, <laughs> and like then, textbooks. <laughs> yeah, and then we end up like not finishing it entirely just because that's a lot to read in a month. So I thought it was kind of cool, like the take that she has where most of them are like... is fiction. Yeah, I already started her one for this month because it was like a thriller. It's called The House in the Pine and it's actually like the debut novel of the author can you imagine like your debut novel becoming debut yeah new york Times bestseller and like on reese's witherspoon's book list but yeah it's called the house in the pines by anna reyes and it's like a a thriller mystery one and i was like in the perfect mood for that today so that's cool also i've noticed in the past that when you go to barnes and noble there's like usually a reese witherspoon book club table And Mm -hmm. it's great because I would always trust those recommendations, to be honest. So yes. And many of the books that I've loved, I love Daisy Joan and the Six last year. And like I said, like Little Fires Everywhere. That book low-key changed my life, actually. So that's awesome. So anyway, if you're looking for good book recommendations as you move into the new year, like check out her list. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Obviously, she announces them like month to month, but they have like the backlog of every book they've read for the entire thing on her website so and who knows maybe she was a big part of helping reading be cool again too all part of the movement i mean she's been doing it since i think 2019 so it's right around that same time period we we were talking about maybe we can thank reese witherspoon (laughs) i'm okay with that yes sir (laughs) can we do a future episode on legally blonde actually oh my gosh there is an episode there i love that yes we are doing an upcoming one on chick flicks, oh, and I feel perfect. like Legally Blonde definitely fits into that. I totally agree. Well, a longer introduction today, but all important things to discuss. Who are we talking about, though, today? Who's our We artist? are talking about Elizabeth Vigila Brune. Mm. Hopefully I said that right. I looked up pronunciations. She is a French portrait artist, and she was actually the personal portrait artist of Marie Antoinette. Oh, yes. So we're going to be talking a lot about pre-revolution France. 
also let me shout out a previous episode that we did one on major political women figures and we talked a lot about marie antoinette yes we did we covered marie antoinette cleopatra i know queen esther and also empress theodora and who else did we have catherine the great yes catherine the great and mary tudor so quite a few. It was an extensive episode, to be honest. But yeah, we it covered was. the basics of like the woman, the woman's life, but then also kind of like talked about how they tied into art and how they've been represented in art and things like that. So yeah, it was a fun one. It was fun. And I think that's actually what led me to her. I've been wanting to talk about her for a while. I will say I also used a lot of the knowledge that I learned on Catherine the Great from that episode in this one too, because Elizabeth... Oh encounters Catherine the Great throughout her journey too. Oh, cool. (laughs) Yes. So that episode will definitely come in handy. I will have it linked in the episode notes as always. So definitely go check that one out. But finish this one first. But but wait. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so should we dive right in? Yeah, I'm excited. So Elizabeth Louise Vigie was her maiden name and she was born in Paris, of course, on April 16th, 1755. She had a mother who was a hairdresser and actually came from like a peasant background. And then her father, Louis Vigie, was a portraitist, pastelist, and a member of the Academy de Saint Luc. And that's where, of course, she received her first art instruction. Something that was interesting, so I think because her father was an artist, and her mother was a hairdresser, they were kind of a little bit higher in the ranks than her mother had been growing up. They definitely weren't in like peasant status anymore. So I'd say like probably like middle higher class because they had a lot more interaction with the rich because the only people that can afford hairdressers and portraitists are rich. Yes. (laughs) So she actually stayed with like a wet nurse and like a foster family until she was about five. It was like a really common practice back then. Rich people would send their kids off to wet nurses for five years and then bring them back. Get them back. Yeah. Yeah. When they were ready to like follow rules, they didn't have to deal with any of the difficult time period. (laughs) Yeah. So really, really common practice. But What was interesting, too, is that she only returned back for a couple of months and then ended up going to a convent, which was kind of like the version of a girl's school where they learned basic sewing, religion, and like other matronly, womanly things (laughs) because boys would go to boarding school and so girls would enter convents until about age 11. For those few months that she was home, when she was about five, her father, she just, she wrote a memoir that all, a lot of these quotes come from. And I'll talk a little bit more about that towards the end. But her father just like absolutely adored her. And he actually gave this like little five-year-old girl free reign over his studio. So he would let her take pastels and crayons and draw freely and would teach her different like little techniques and stuff and talk to her about what he was doing in his studio. And he told her after seeing one of her drawings he said, you will be a painter child if there ever was one. Aww. Yes. And so that really stuck with her, just like her father's faith in her and his love for her, even though it was just like a couple of months. She returned home at age 11 and her father continued to instruct her in art. He had a lot of his artist friends come and meet her and give her advice, including Gabriel Francois Doen, John Baptiste Gruz, and Joseph Vernet. 
And it's believed a lot of art historians have said you can see some of those influences from them in portraits that she did around that time period. What's really sad is that her father died only a year later after she got home. This like really bummed me out because it obviously sounds like he was the family member she was the closest to. And yet she Mm -hmm. spent so little time with him, like a couple of months when she was five and like a year when she was 11. And that was it. Oh, I'm very glad that our families don't follow that standard anymore of like a wet nurse boarding school because, man. (laughs) Here's a side thing that I might cut out. But like the generational trauma that that causes. Right. That can't be good for human development to not be that emotional, not even emotionally close, but physically close to your family during your development years. And then that's the kind of stuff you carry with you. And now we have literally years, I mean, hundreds and hundreds of years of just issues that have compiled. I don't Definitely. Know. No, like Michelangelo had a wet nurse growing up and he often talked about how like his wet nurse was a stonemason's wife. And so he like mm. felt like because he never really had a mother that like the rocks were like infused in him through like the stonemason's oh. wife and that the stone was his ancestry. Very weird. He was a very like radical guy, but like he had a lot of issues with the fact that he didn't really have parents. Um. And that makes total sense. Like the fact that she's 11, 12 and like has like a couple months total of interaction with her father. I don't know. Like that, that can't be good. No, it sounds really awful. So it really sucks that he died so early because it sounds like he was really excited to continue to teach her and tutor her. And then he was just gone. However, she had gained enough of like a reputation of being an artist that Uh she was able to start painting professionally at like age 14. She did this to like help support her family because obviously her mother was widowed and they had a younger brother. So she painted a portrait of her brother and her mother and they got a lot of regard in the area and they were spoken of really highly. And so she started taking commissions and painting portraits. And it was actually really funny in her memoir. She talked about like <laughs> how she would handle men who would stare at her when she was painting their portrait. And it was very clever. Now, mind you, she's 14. So these men are obviously creeps. But she would like tell them that she was painting the eyes and then kept having them look in the distance And her mother was always present during all of these because in order to keep it appropriate, she had to have another woman there. And she would just laugh at her daughter being like cheeky to these like older men because she would just keep having them look away. And so the focus was never remaining on her. And it was just like a very perfect way to handle the situation. And it shows like an amount of like cleverness that she had like even at a very early age. Yeah, I was going to say or like a level of like wit. yeah. Yeah. It also created a trend of like having noblemen in their portraits gaze off into the distance like probably and you'll notice that in a lot that's what I'm like I've seen that it's amazing that that's what where it came from yep so she had a ton of these like noblemen in their portraits like gazing off into the distance and a lot of that was just so they wouldn't stare at her that's that's like one of the most inspiring things I think we've ever discussed on the podcast like she's like stop staring at me oh look over there becomes a popular thing in portraits because of that wow like absolutely hilarious 
That that is amazing. Yeah, and then she kept doing it because then it was like what people wanted. It became a part of her style. So I mean, it does look very stoic. I'll I'll give it. It does. It looks very like royal. You know, distinguished. (laughs) Look off into the distance and not at me, you creeps. Yeah. So very very funny. I also think it's really gross that like even with her mother there that they were like staring at her. It doesn't surprise me. Men know no bounds. Just a couple of years later, her mother actually ended up marrying again. He was a wealthy jeweler named Jacques Francois Lesevere. And the family ended up moving closer to the royal palace. She hated him. (laughs) She really hated him. He would use a lot of her father's personal possessions. He wore her father's clothes without altering them to fit him. And so I don't know how ill-fitting they were, but just the fact that, like, he didn't even get them altered, like, really made her annoyed. And the worst thing he did is he actually took all of the money that she earned from her portrait painting because he figured, like, she was doing it for the family, so therefore it belonged to him, which is gross, also considering he had his own income. So what the heck, dude, stealing your stepdaughter's income from portrait painting and like literally a child so but during this time period some very important things happened i had to guess on a lot of these names so i like researched her and then i also watched a 90 minute documentary on amazon prime Mm. about her it's called like the very inspiring or glamorous life or something of elizabeth vigie lebrun if you just type in her name it comes up and so they were like name dropping a bunch of people and I don't know how they're actually spelled. So I just spelled them like they looked and then I tried to Google, <laughs> like they sounded and I tried to Google them later and I couldn't find it. And it was just like a bunch of Duchess of this place and du- Duke of this place. So obviously I don't know who any of these people like really are, but <laughs> I was like, crap, I don't know how to find them. So I was too lazy to go back and like try and turn on subtitles and like write it all down and everything. That's so fair. you're just gonna I'm have- excited to see yeah. how it goes anyways. Yeah. I have to deal with my memory on a lot of this. But one thing that Elizabeth loved to do, because it was like one of the only things women could do, is they would go out and promenade. If you've watched Bridgerton or anything, mm. you know what promenading is. Basically, I it's just... still need to watch Bridgerton. Yes, you do. Um, you go out and you take a walk. Sounds That's all nice. promenading is. Yeah. So her and her mother went out and they would promenade around. And that's when you would socialize with everyone. Everyone in the town would like go out around the same time and walk around and talk to everybody. Honestly, I'm yeah, that sounds great. Yeah. I mean, they didn't have like traditional jobs that they were meeting anyone at. And so that was like the chance to actually meet your neighbors out in public. So she met the Duchess of Chat. I think you would say uh, she was a major patron of the arts and she actually knew Marie Antoinette personally. So that's who helped introduce her later to Marie Antoinette. But oh. she met her very early on when she was super young. And then on another walk, she actually met the queen and her ladies in waiting. And this was not Marie Antoinette. This was the previous queen. But okay. the queen stopped her and actually allowed her to keep walking in their presence when her and her mother turned around to leave, which is a very big deal because... Usually, if you ran into the queen and you weren't formally introduced, you had to turn around and leave. Wow. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. So she spoke very kindly about her. Then during this time period, also, her studio was seized. This sounds a lot crazier than it was, but like basically during that time period, in order to be an artist and have an art studio, you had to belong to like an art academy. You had to be like a member 
otherwise it was like unofficial you didn't have like your artistic license and so you weren't allowed to work obviously she was like a 17 year old girl so she wasn't officially a member of the academy and so they seized her studio and basically said you can't do this so she applied to the Academy de St. Luke that her father had belonged to, and they ended up accepting her and exhibiting her works in the salon. So she was allowed to become an official member, which is awesome. Apparently very few women were members, but it wasn't super uncommon. It just was very rare. So it was very few people, but like women were allowed to become members of the salon. And of course, with like the clientele and everything that she had and the notoriety she had already had, and I'm sure her relationship with her father helped. They were like, yeah, sure, whatever. We'll let you become a member. On January 11th, 76, she actually got married and she married a art dealer named John Baptiste Pierre Lebrun. It's kind of cute how they met. His family had a really extensive home art gallery. Because he was an art dealer, so that makes sense. And at that time period, women weren't allowed to copy from nude models or like actually attend a lot of art classes. And so a lot of what women would do is they would copy paintings done by old masters in order to further their skills. It's a very common practice. People still do it today. You would go to like an art gallery, an art museum, sit down with your paints and copy a really well-known painting in order to learn the skills and figure it out. So she would go to his home to help further her education and learn how to paint. And he really liked her. He kept proposing. She talks about how she didn't really feel the need to get married like a lot of women would because she had her own independent like income and job. But her mother was like, hey, this is a really advantageous match. Like, you should just marry him. Mm-hmm. And so she did. <laughs> well, Uh, He actually started exhibiting her work at their home in Paris, and then a lot of the salons, he helped push forward her artwork there. So, So I mean, it's supportive. Yeah, he really, really, really supported her art career, which is something that's really incredible. I mean, obviously, bare minimum, but... (laughs) That's what I was just going to (laughs) say. This was 18th century France, so... Yes, we'll give credit where credit's due. Yes. Just a couple of years later, she actually gave birth to her daughter, Jeanne Lucy Louise, who she called Julie, and she also nicknamed her Brunette. I think it's because their last name was La Brune, so she called her Brunette, like Little Brune, um, which is cute. (laughs) And then also around the same time period, she started like with encouragement from her husband. She started like a young woman's school of art. She wasn't allowed to do it officially. But she would like invite women over who were interested in art and she would have them copy from her drawings and like mimic previous sketches of people from like her portrait sessions and stuff because they weren't allowed to have live models. The documentary also talked about how like she had a really cool technique that like pastel artists have where instead of just ending a line, they kind of like smear it down. And so it like softens it completely. And so there's like no Mm -hmm. harsh lines in anything. And it's like really hard to do. And she taught all of her students this. So it was like a really hard and useful skill to have. That is cool. A year after her daughter was born, her husband took her with him to tour Flanders and the Netherlands. And during that time period, there was a ton of like Flemish art that was taking place, including most notably Peter Paul Rubens. She loved his work. She was really inspired by it. And one of her self-portraits, called Self-Portrait with a Straw Hat, was kind of pretty much an imitation of one of these like famous portraits that she'd seen there. 
but it did so well that she would end up adding accessories from that portrait that she did to a bunch of other like famous client portraits at their request. So then she was painting like all these straw hats with flowers and like similar attire on all of her clients moving forward. That's cool. And from that time forward, after that trip, her and her husband like lived pretty independently of one another. It doesn't really sound like they loved each other. I don't think it was like super common to like love your spouse really at that time, as sad as that is. She spoke kind of badly of him in her memoirs at times, but like he did like unfailingly support her artistic career and even Mm -hmm. like help her set prices for like her portrait settings. And she actually had like some of the highest fees for portraiture at that time. Which helped her like further her career, gain a higher clientele, and like made more connections. So like he did help her out a lot. So yeah, like I think they were at least friends in some way. (laughs) At least hope so. (laughs) Yeah. From things later, it sounds like they at least like had some affection for each other. It just wasn't like the same level as you would expect from a a romantic partner. Yeah. Yeah. She also is just like really talented, smart, beautiful, witty, and charming. And so a lot of clients just adored her. One of the things you had to do when you were a portrait artist is be able to make conversation with your client and like help oh, relax yeah. them because they're sitting there for hours. <laughs> it so, feels like, like the original hairdresser. Yes. That's like the vibe I get where it's like you have to be charming. You have to be a fun person to be around because you're that's your job basically is just to talk to people and make them look good. Yeah, exactly. And like they're sitting there with you face to face for hours upon hours upon hours upon hours. Like, yeah, you have to be able to like carry a conversation with them in order to make it more bearable because it was something that like a lot of people hated doing too. Like they hated sitting for their portrait. I mean, fair. (laughs) Yeah. And rich people did it like all the time throughout their entire life. So I mean, I guess if you're trying to decide which portraitist you'd want to hire you would choose the fun one yeah right you'd want to choose one you could actually like talk to instead of one who just stares at you (laughs) that's weird yep in 1787 she actually had like a minor scandal because she painted a self-portrait of herself with her daughter julie and Uh it was exhibited at the salon and she was smiling in it with her teeth wow and that was controversial so controversial interesting i would never have guessed that that would be what the scandal was gonna be yep it made it to the court gossip sheets and they (laughs) literally talked about how that she was smiling and showed her teeth in the portrait and it even went on to be called narcissistic (gasps) the scandal indeed yep with Simone de Beauvoir saying in her book, The Second Sex, that Madame Vigée Lebrun never wearied of putting her smiling maternity on her canvases. Wow. Yep. So that left obviously quite an impression. Definitely. It's just funny though, too, because like smiling maternity, like you're mad that she's happy being a mom. With, like- the, with her child? <laughs> like just really weird like she's happy and that's a bad thing I don't know interesting this is kind of where Marie Antoinette enters the scene once more so as we talked about in the Marie Antoinette episode she wasn't from France originally she was from Austria she was an Austrian princess who came over to marry Louis in France 
And so one of the only ways that her and her family stayed in touch was they would like send back copies of portraits of her. Cause like she left oh. when she was 14. So Fair. Yeah, yeah, she got married when she was that's 14. That's what pictures were. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So instead of like sending pictures back, they would send back copies of the portraits. And Marie Antoinette's mother apparently hated all of the portraits that were done of her daughter. And Marie Antoinette wasn't very fond of them herself. And so she demanded that the queen find a better portrait artist for Marie. And this is where Vigila Brun comes in because she was granted patronage. Mm -hmm by Marie Antoinette and this led to a very close relationship she ended up painting more than 30 portraits of the queen and her family making her like the unofficial official Marie Antoinette portrait artist she wasn't allowed to be considered the official portrait artist we talk a little bit about this in the Sophonisba Angasola episode where like women weren't allowed to be the official portrait artists and like if you were then you had to be for the entire court for like the whole mm -hmm. royal family and since she was just painting Marie Antoinette and her children got it She's like not the official one, but like she was the kind official of the portrait official artist. One. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and a lot of scholars actually talked about how, like, the reason why Marie Antoinette probably loved Elizabeth Vigila Brune's art of her in comparison to all of the other portraits that had been done uh -huh. was because they called her like a portrait plastic surgeon <laughs> oh. because she would like highlight their greatest features and then kind of like diminish the ones that they didn't love as much or that didn't put them oh. in such a flattering light so like make their noses smaller or something yeah their forehead's not as big I don't know yeah and like she was really good at still making it look like them but like the best version of them so it's like the original facetune yeah yeah like literally and so if you're dealing with a bunch of like really rich vain ladies like what better way to endear all of them to you than to like make them look great like True. that would be amazing and you can even see it in some of the portraits if you look at like ones done by other artists uh -huh. and then compare it like she definitely looks prettier in the ones done by Marie Vigila Brune and I just think that's funny so she did that for everyone and that's probably what helped Made make her so career popular. apparently like Marie Antoinette had a really like prominent chin or something and oh. she got rid of it in like all of her portraits or just like made it look less prominent prominent <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know. So she also would like really listen to them and then also like tried to incorporate their natural attributes into the painting, not mm -hmm. just their appearances. So a lot of them commented on like if she was talking to like a really sassy lady, then somehow it like came across in her eyes more that there was like a little oh. bit more of like charm and like sass to the person versus like other people. So she was able to like infuse like the personality and like true graces and attributes of the people in her portraits and that sounds like something that every woman would want right yeah. <laughs> like, yeah especially when like they didn't exactly want their true likeness <laughs> featured and that makes yeah. sense with how much we all filter our photos now that is so relatable yeah I mean we're no better than them no we're really not it's just easier for us to do it yeah, we don't have to hire a portraitist and sit there for three days no. or I don't know how long it takes. Although that would be really cool, wouldn't it? To have that experience. Yeah. Like it would kind of suck, but it would like kind of be cool just to like see what that was like. I fully agree. Maybe one day we'll sit. 
for a more than amused portrait. <laughs> That'll be our future episode cover. Our that would be so cool, but it, it would take so long. And you'd have to probably like, pay someone so much money. So impractical. But yeah. I think I mean, a lot I guess, of like, people. The modern equivalent is just like sending in pictures and. Yeah, like, I was gonna say work. a lot of people will do it from photos now, but I don't think anyone actually does like live, live. portraits. Although that I mean, would be really like cool. people who do like live wedding paintings we've that's shouted true. out a couple on the podcast so you're right i guess that's like the modern equivalent of yeah a, you know live portraitist or crazy they're usually not as detailed as a lot of these ones were though but definitely not so there's a lot of ideas around that like her and marie antoinette were like really close friends they weren't really like they had a very good relationship they were very endeared to one another she would stay sometimes Mm -hmm. after her like portrait sessions and they would perform popular opera songs together um love that yeah she said i was fortunate as to be on pleasant terms with the queen when she heard that i had something of a voice we rarely had a sitting without singing some duets by guerci together for she was exceedingly fond of music although she did not sing very true as for her conversation, it would be difficult for me to convey all of its charm, all of its affability. I do not think that Queen Marie Antoinette never missed an opportunity of saying something pleasant to those who had the honor of being presented to her, and the kindness she always bestowed upon me has ever been one of my sweetest memories. Wow. She really adored her. Like, she had nothing but good things to say about Marie Antoinette ever. She even talked about one time she missed a portrait sitting because she was pregnant. And so she uh, was throwing up in the morning and like went the next day to apologize and was basically like, I am so sorry. Like I missed it. I was so sick. I'll just like show myself out. And the queen was like, no, like I have time right now. And because she was so excited about like not being in trouble, she accidentally dropped her paintings all over the floor. And the queen came over and like picked them up and handed them to her. Wow. Which is a big deal because that means the the queen knelt down in front of her. Oh. Yeah. yeah. You don't do that. Okay. I like Mm -hmm. forget. Sometimes I like think of this story in like today's terms. It's like wow she helped her like what a decent human being and then it's like oh yeah she's literally the queen of france yeah it's like (laughs) she's not allowed to do that so (laughs) so she never said any bad things about her like you can tell she really did adore marie antoinette and thought she was just like such a kind person also marie antoinette really helped her in one specific case vigila brune wanted to be a member of the royal academy of art and sculpture it was like the academy royal de painter et de sculpture so the royal academy of painting and sculpture i could speak that amount of french french (laughs) (laughs) but uh it was even more rare for women to be granted full membership to that. And she was initially refused on the grounds that her husband was an art dealer and you weren't allowed to be associated with art dealers. It's interesting. I was like trying to understand the full idea of this and it was very strange. So even though she was an artist because her husband was an art dealer and she was a Uh woman, it was considered that women didn't have an occupation of their own. So whatever their husband was, oh. was also their occupation. So like, why would they bring an art dealer into it? Yes. But that's weird to me because there's no way that a man who was like a lawyer or a doctor, his wife would be granted the same opportunities. And yet she was being barred based on her husband's. And also like, 
if she's literally doing the portraits of Marie Antoinette and still can't get into this, like what? Yeah, like a very, very strange idea that it's like, well, women don't have occupations. So you can't be here because your husband is an art dealer. But you're and right. Dealers no women would get extra privileges because of their, you know, in that. No, way. they wouldn't be like, oh, your husband's a doctor. So therefore you're a doctor. So get in here. You're practicing medicine. True. <laughs> it wouldn't work that way. So very, very weird laws. But I mean, that's no surprise. But Marie Antoinette spoke to her husband and Louis put in an order to the Royal Academy of Art and basically said, no, admit her. Wow. Yeah. You can't say no to the queen. No, you, well, to the king. Oh, oh true. Okay. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and so she was one of only 15 women to be granted full membership between 1648 and 1793, wow. um, which is a very big gap. And there was only four during the year that she was admitted. Her biggest rival, actually, Adelaide LaBelle Guillard. I hope I'm saying that one right. Future episode, probably. That's what I was going to (laughs) say. Yeah, she was actually admitted on the same day. And as a part of her reception piece, she actually submitted an allegorical painting called Peace Bringing Back Abundance instead of a portrait. We talked about this in our Sovenisba Angasola episode. (laughs) And also, actually, the Artemisia Gentowski. I really, really love painters. But historical and allegorical paintings were like a higher level of painting that was reserved for men because women weren't allowed to paint in the presence of a male nude and so they couldn't paint a lot of like historical or mythological paintings but that was like the higher level of painting right like the historical paintings that was like the prominent versions portraits was kind of like the lower version of art and so with her submitting an allegorical painting which was actually of women she was making a stance Yes. And because of this, they actually didn't put her work in a standard category of painting. I don't know if that was like a necessary thing or not, but like they didn't put her in the history category or the portrait category. They just like admitted her. What's kind of a bummer about this is her membership in the academy actually dissolved after the French Revolution because female academics were abolished. Wow. Yeah, so we can recognize it now, but for a while there, she was taken off the list. We're going to take a quick break just to spotlight one of our new favorite women artists. Okay, so the person that I'm spotlighting, the tag is Personal Hype Girl, which, admittedly, that caught my eye. The thing that showed up on my Explore page was a disco ball wearing cowboy boots and cowboy hats. And it says like, a disco ball is hundreds of pieces of broken glass put together to make a magical ball of light. You are not broken. You are a disco ball. So (laughs) So she's a digital creator. And really, it is a lot of like, yeah, digital art. But she also has like t-shirts and things like that. And it's yeah, it's a lot of just wholesome, positive messages. And it's really cute. It's a bright, colorful page. Also, it's I just like, realized it's like very like religious minded too. So if you're into that, oh yeah, it's for you. Yeah, I was like, oh, God's got it. Cool. I didn't notice that. Yeah, it's um, okay to have Jesus and a therapist too. Nice, good sentiment. Stop saying yes just because you feel bad saying no. Same. Yep, that's <laughs> that's my problem. Anyways, so yeah, it's really adorable, really cute, and like I said, they have like really adorable shirts that are like and keychains even. Wow, good old Daisy keychains. 
cute. So yeah, go check her out. Again, it's Personal Hype Girl. Love that. I have one as well. Her name is Serena Malion, I think. And her username is S-M-A-L-Y-O-N. S-Malion. She is a freelance illustrator and also does cover art for a lot of books. And I'm assuming they're fantasy because these are way cool. They're magical. They are so magical. So yeah, she recently just unveiled a cover for a book called Amplatera. And then also has like a bunch of prints available. It's just gorgeous. My favorite one on her feed is she has one called Saying Good Morning to 2023 that she posted four days ago. And it's like this woman stretching whose like hair yeah, is the sunrise. It. Uh-huh. It's gorgeous. It is beautiful. And then also the one right below it says Saying Good Night to 2022. And it's a woman whose like dress is the night sky. Oh, I love it. Yeah, absolutely beautiful. So, yeah, she's also apparently done stuff for, like, Magic the Gathering. Um, Oh, way cool. Yeah, she has prints available on Society6. There's a lot here. So she's worked for a lot of, like, really prominent things. I love that. Because it's the beginning of the year, I feel like we should properly explain. So every week or every episode, we like to do this segment where we obviously spotlight artists that we're finding on Instagram. So if you are a creator and you have art that you would want to be spotlighted, or if you know of someone that you think should be spotlighted, DM us. Let us know. We would love to highlight people who are listening and your friends. So let us know. Definitely. And if you're looking for past spotlights, it's everyone that we follow for the most part. We've spotlighted. At some point, we follow everyone that we spotlight. So you can literally just go through the people that we follow and you'll find amazing artists there that we completely adore. All right, now back to the show. She also had like a major reputation in France, Paris specifically, the royal circle of being a woman of taste and specifically one of three. There were three women that were known for their taste that created a lot of fashion trends and basically became like the celebrities of the Paris inner circle. So she's also like the original influencer. Yes. (laughs) And it was on a lower level than the other two because the other two are, of course, Marie Antoinette and her Ah, dress designer, Rose Burton. And so it was literally like Marie Antoinette, her dress designer, and her portrait artist. They were like the it girls of Paris. (laughs) Ah, I'm obsessed with this. Yes. And they like had so much control over what became popular because one was the queen one decided uh-huh. what the queen dressed like and one decided the appearance the queen what gave to like. the entire kingdom that didn't know her personally. Like, it makes sense. I also want to do, like, a future episode on Rose Burton, like, her dress designer. There's, like, mm-hmm. really some interesting stuff about her. What is the most interesting thing is that just like a court painter, there was usually one dress designer, like, one stylist, I guess you would call them, for okay. the entire royal court. Or they had like a couple, but they were like a part of the royal court. And it was a part of etiquette that like you had to go through the official royal ones. Okay. But because of like a lot of things that were happening at the time with like Paris and uh, how much everyone hated the queen because she was Austrian. And we talked about this all in our Marie Antoinette episode that like she was very, very hated. She flouted court etiquette and held private consultations with Rose Burton, who had actually been a commoner in order to get advice on style specifically for her. 
Wow. This led her to be like the leading fashion designer of the French aristocracy. And she was like the central figure of European fashion at the time. Like this catapulted her. She was called the minister of fashion literally all across Paris and was the brains behind every single new dress commissioned by the queen. And this became like the only way that Marie Antoinette could express herself. And so Rose Burton was in charge of clothing her literally until she died. Like she delivered clothes for her on her execution day. Wow. And she had like a profound effect in French society because she created like those really large gowns that seem ridiculous like these huge gowns with the huge hoop skirts Uh because then women took up three times as much space as men making the women a more imposing presence genius yes (laughs) again I'm loving everything that I'm learning from this episode (laughs) that is incredible Like, absolutely genius. And then, of course, because she became so popular in France, and France became, like, this major tastemaker and still continues to be of the fashion industry, a lot of the dresses she made in Paris were sent to London, Venice, Vienna, St. Petersburg, and Constantinople, which is known for creating the worldwide reputation of French couture. So it's like always to her. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and clothing, of course, continued to be one of the most visible markers of social privilege. And Antoinette was known for her groundbreaking fashions that were all created by Rose Burton. Wow. After the huge, like, imposing gowned trend, there came, like, the free-flowing cotton dress um, called Engal that was, like, a very free-flowing, like, empire waist gown Mm -hmm. that was made out of cotton gauze or silk. And it was actually like very low cut and had like a belt cut around the waist. And it was for like more of a private space, like in your home, like more of a casual setting. And this same trend was very, very influenced by Elizabeth Vigila Brune. She was the first portrait artist that didn't use powder on her models. So their skin had more of like a natural skin color (laughs) rather than like the very, very white stark color. And she also allowed a lot of their like skin texture to show through instead of like imagine your face covered in white powder right like it's gonna look very different absolutely she also like couldn't wear a lot of the like really insane dresses herself or like the wigs because she was painting (laughs) and so she couldn't have those same restrictions so that like empire waist free-flowing gown style with like a colored belt was like her uniform that's what she wore Mm -hmm. Um, and she painted a lot of her models with like their natural hair and didn't spend a lot of money on her own clothes and she ended up painting Marie Antoinette in a muslin dress like in that cotton dress that was known to be worn in your own home and it was so scandalous because cotton was the same thing that people used to make underwear and that was for your own home and how dare she show the queen in that way of course it created a cotton craze that became so popular that that led to like slave trade and a bunch of other things down the line so not every ripple effect is good yeah Yeah, but it was what commoners could afford and so the fact that the queen was wearing cotton was just crazy she actually later had to replace the portrait with her in the exact same pose but in a very adorned dress that was more appropriate and her hair styled more fashionably but it is interesting that like she really humanized her and then received backlash for it and she was known for doing that like a lot of the 
portraits she did were to try and improve the reputation of the queen. She painted her with her children in 1787, and it was to try and counter bad press and negative judgments that the queen had been receiving after like infertility rumors and the affair of the necklace which we talked about. Oh, yeah. Like, she didn't buy the necklace that was meant for the mistress of the king, and it cost so much that, like, it made everyone mad, and then the necklace got stolen, and everyone continued to blame her, even though it wasn't her fault. Yes, I do remember that now. Yeah, like, a huge deal. The necklace is actually still missing. They never found it, so... Lost treasure. Yes. But the portrait that she painted at this time was showing the queen in her home at the Palace of Versailles. And she had her children all around her. And they put the jewelry cabinet in the background. And so it was a way to show that like her family came before her jewels. And it was also to just like really demonstrate that she was like a mother first and foremost, because that's kind of what she was supposed to be like her identity as the foreign born queen. Like, uh-huh. her being a mother, like, create heirs was basically her only true function. There's a lot of problems with that. But, like, they were just trying to show that, like, she was fulfilling her function as queen. I mean, they were trying to make sure that what ended up happening didn't end up happening. So, whatever. I yes, yeah, I get it. And they even had, like, an empty cradle that was showing, like, her recent loss that she had had of a child. Um, oh. Because she did lose a child very early on. And she also modeled it after Renaissance holy family paintings with, like, the hierarchy of, like, Marie Antoinette in the center and then, like, Mm -hmm. the children falling in a pyramid shape underneath her to, like, show the hierarchy of that and, like, really harken back to those early Renaissance paintings. They were doing everything they could. However, (laughs) because Mm -hmm. the jewel case was in the painting, it just reminded people of the necklace scandal and then they got mad at her all over again. So maybe not a good move. Yeah, but it's a beautiful portrait. And despite the controversies of the queen, Elizabeth Vigilabrune did continue to do really well. Her salon was full of the highest and most important people in France. She had a lot of musicians, celebrities, and more. She would throw these like lavish, distinguished parties. She described like a really cool one where like her brother told her a poem about Uh antique style of dinners that they had back in like ancient Greece. And she decided that they would throw one that night. And so she like called the chef and had her cook like a bunch of different sauces for all of the different courses that they were having, which was really common. And then as everyone came in, she like threw draperies on all of them and like basically dressed them in Greek togas (laughs) and then decorated the room with that. And they ate with candlelight and had like this little Greek dinner. So like the original frat toga party. Yes, literally. It's also believed she was having an affair with a Count DeVoe and had a lock of his hair in her snuff box. They were very close friends. Obviously, she probably was having an affair. I mean, like, her and her husband were not estranged. It doesn't seem like like, romance was, like, on the table. Yeah, like, he was probably having affairs, so was she. I think you could consider it, like, an open marriage, but, like, But no one was saying it out loud. Yeah, but she was considered by a lot of people to be his mistress, so there's some early French rumors for you. Of course, as we expected in this story to happen, the French Revolution was on the rise in 1789, and because of what was happening... She was obviously terrified for her life. I would be too. (laughs) Like if you're close friends with all of the royals and the royals are all being killed, that's not a good position to be. Yeah. Yes. So the same day that the royal family like fled Versailles, she left too. She took her young daughter, Julie, and they dressed as working women. And then three of her dear friends and her brother, 
I think the Count was one of them. They rode next to the carriage on horses until they reached the French border to try and ensure her safety to get out of France. Wow. And then she had to pose as like a common woman for the rest of the the ride out of that area of Europe to just be safe. And she said in her memoir, actually, that on a carriage ride, a thief kept talking about how all of the things he'd stolen from all the rich people that he had killed and like how he had strung up their heads on light posts and like everything. And he was like name dropping a bunch of her friends. (gasps) And finally, she was like so horrified, but like trying not to react that she was finally like, can you stop talking about this in front of my daughter? And he like finally changed the subject and she was able to make it through the rest of the ride. But she literally had to sit there with someone who had like murdered her friends. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So terrifying. In order to make sure no one came after her, they had this like whole story that she actually just went to Italy to instruct and improve herself. It was a common thing for artists to do at that time. So it wasn't like that crazy, but obviously the timing was very (laughs) strategic. Yeah. Yeah. And her husband actually remained in Paris. As an art dealer, he wasn't like under any immediate harm. I still would not take that risk. I know. But like he did end up being fine. Okay, that's true. I guess. Yeah. (laughs) So like it really was her that probably had to worry because she was like the official artist of Marie Antoinette. Like, yeah, I think they made an excellent call there. Yeah. But she actually had to remain out of Paris for 12 years. Wow. So yeah, the next 12 years, I don't, we're already at an hour and I have a lot. (laughs) Oh no. I like try to briefly sum this up because nothing like super crazy happens. First off, she goes to Italy. She joins the Academy in Parma and the Academy di San Luca in Rome and is able to paint portraits of Maria Carolina of Austria, the sister of Marie Antoinette, and her eldest four living children. So she still continues to exist off of the relationships that she built in Paris. I thought it was really funny. (laughs) She actually talks about one of the eldest children and says that she was extremely ugly and pulled such faces that I was reluctant to finish her portrait. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Yeah. So very hilarious. She also did like a bunch of allegorical paintings, painting a lot more of like history and different things, which was very successful for her and gained a lot of praise and was shown in a lot of salons. Next, she moved to... Austria. She was commissioned to paint Princess Maria Josepha Hermelglide von Esterhazy. Whew, nice. What a name. Yeah. Along with two, wait, three other princesses. And it was the Liechtenstein sister in laws. So she showed them in like unornamented Roman inspired garments that were very neoclassic and very classical, of course. And then also visited a bunch of galleries and seeing like Raphael's painting and talking about how he was the greatest master of them all and a bunch of other stuff. So she continued to just like really excel, see art, paint, royalty. And that was Austria. Then she moved to Russia and actually lived there for quite a bit of time. She was well received by the nobility there and painted a bunch of aristocrats in Russia, including the former King of Poland, uh, Stanislaw August Poniatowski. I think he actually went on to be reinstated because of Catherine the Great, but Uh, at the time he was like the former king. (laughs) And then um, she also painted Catherine the Great's granddaughters, Elena and Alexandra Pavlona. She painted them as well in Grecian tunics, but then 
heard from like one of the empress's favorites that it was like scandalous and that Catherine the Great didn't like it because of the bare skin that the short sleeves revealed and how it was like too scandalous for the young girls to be shown that way and she was like really worried about it and like really hurt by it and so she replaced the tunics with muslin dresses and like added long sleeves well there we go (laughs) yeah apparently later she found out that there was like no such conversation that happened, but the documentary said that it did. So I don't know, kind of like up to debate whether or not Catherine the Great really cared whether or not her granddaughter's shoulders were showing, but... But regardless, she did change it just in case. (laughs) Which is fair. What's kind of a bummer is Catherine the Great actually agreed to sit for Lebrun herself, but right after she agreed to sit for her, like the next day, she died the same day that she was going to get her portrait done. She died? Yeah. It was like towards the end of her life. So yeah, she never got to paint Catherine the Great. But while there, she was made a member of the Academy of Fine Arts of St. Petersburg. And also while there, her daughter Julie married a man who was a secretary to the director of Imperial Theaters of St. Petersburg. Wow. She wasn't happy about it. She wanted her daughter to be an artist and she was trying to teach her her skills and she didn't want her to marry this random Russian man, but she did. So they actually became estranged for a really long time and they didn't talk for many, many years. But she did start to think of Russia as her second home and thought that she'd have to stay there forever because she didn't think she'd ever be allowed to go back to France. But while back in Paris, her husband was continuing to campaign for her to return. She had been put on like a list of, I don't really get it. It's the word of emigrants, but like, I don't know. It's like people who vacated the country, I guess. Like they considered them counter-revolutionaries. And her brother and her husband were actually imprisoned for a short time in France. And during that time period, he divorced her officially to try and protect her in case anything happened to him. And Uh also to help protect the assets. Because if like he divorced her, but then like she got everything in the divorce, then even though she wasn't there, his stuff would still be there. If that makes sense. Okay. Yeah. So the assets were able to stay safe. And of course, he was still trying to protect his daughter and his wife. Like he had a responsibility to them. So they were like divorced. But anyway. Yeah. (laughs) But he like campaigned for her to be able to return home. And finally, in January of 1802, she received news that her name had officially been removed from the list of counter revolutionaries and she was allowed to return to France. And she immediately went to her ex-husband's house. That's where she stayed. And and he greeted her really warmly. So I think they were like very fond of one another. She did talk about how like seeing him was like a very surreal and very wonderful feeling. Like getting to talk to him again. It had been. I was going to say like, yeah, a long time. However, France had changed a ton. This is during the time period when Napoleon Bonaparte was emperor. Oh. I don't know why. I didn't. I thought that like France went immediately from Marie Antoinette being executed to like free (laughs) you know what I mean like I thought like the Lamez French Revolution that was like right at that same time period it wasn't Uh like that was two different revolutions oh I remember learning about that yeah and being so confused but yeah yeah, because you hear about the French Revolution you think Lamez And then you also think Marie Antoinette. Like, those are the two very popular moments we talk about the French Revolution. But there were two. Not that French Revolution. Yeah. Yeah. So that kind of threw me off for a minute. I was like, why do they have an emperor? They're free. No, they're not. (laughs) No. I I don't know very much about France history, but it seems 
a little ugly. No offense. Oh, very, very ugly. No, I agree. It's a very ugly history, honestly. Like, I think they would agree. Their revolution was a lot bloodier than ours ever got. Also, like, they had to fight it on their own turf. Like, the king was literally, like, across the street from them. Whereas, like, we were fighting England, who was across an entire ocean. True. So, very, very different revolutions. Different vibes. Yes. Yeah. Really different. And I think that's why theirs went on for so long. But she hated Napoleon Bonaparte. (laughs) Fair, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. I don't think a lot of people actually really liked him. And there was a lot of new rules, new customs, uh, different fashions and styles and society that was there that she just wasn't used to. She liked That makes sense because I was like confused when you said that like after the Revolutionary War, women would no longer be like allowed in the academy or whatever because I was like wait they went backwards but like yeah I guess yeah they did they did they went backwards they literally went very backwards and it made one of her statements make a lot more sense that I'll talk about at the very end but like remember that France kind of got worse for a little while so while she was able to return to Paris and that was officially like her residence she did take a trip to London to try and find new clientele but during that time period London was going through like a boom of art there was a million portrait artists and too much Uh. competition and she received a request from Napoleon's sister to go and paint her portrait and so she did and she hated the whole experience I loved this quote she actually said I have painted true princesses who never made me wait because the princess had like late arrivals she would show up late to all of her sittings Uh, sometimes she was worried she wasn't going to show up at all and so I thought it was hilarious that she's like I painted true princesses that never made me wait Uh, (laughs) definitely a day (laughs) because she had she painted like all of the European monarchy at that Uh point so she was very annoyed by Napoleon's family there was also like a heat wave in Paris in 1807 and so she traveled to Switzerland with a bunch of friends to the Swiss Alps where it was a lot cooler and they stayed there for a while and she was friends with a lot of people there. It was like one of them was Madame de Stahl. She was a loyal royalist and a fellow hater of Napoleon. So huh. they were like good friends. She painted portraits of her as well. At this time as well, she received a note from her daughter in Russia that she was sick and was dying. Oh. Yeah, which is something you don't expect a lot of parents to have to live through is their death of their child so she rushed to her side and got there in her last moments but she ended up dying and she was really sad about that but she did get to see her in some of the last moments of her life and was like I can't believe I was ever mad at her and everything so they did reconcile right before her death but she was very very sad and bitter about the death of her daughter and this is kind of the very end of her life when everything wound down she had some nieces that she grew really close to especially after the loss of her daughter She passed on a lot of her skills of portrait painting to them because her daughter had never followed in her footsteps of becoming an artist. She purchased a home in her later years in France and then divided her time between Paris and the new location in France where her home was called Louvciennes, I think. Mm, Okay. And then this is the moment when her nieces actually helped her write her memoir. They were like, you know, you've had this famous life. Like, you met all of these incredible historical people. You should write it all down. There was a lot of people who believed that she worked with ghostwriters. But there are pages of, like, her own original manuscripts. So it is proven that, like, she wrote it herself. A lot of people were also very angry with the beautiful and kind ways she portrayed Marie Antoinette. Because I was just going to say, I bet that was controversial. Yes, it was. But her nieces helped her towards the end of her life finish it it is actually available online for free through project gutenberg 
because oh, cool. it's ridiculously old. <laughs> so yeah, I was honestly shocked that yeah, someone from this time period had a memoir. Like that's amazing. And that it survived this long like Yeah. It's yeah. Incredible. But she was famous. Like she was a celebrity. So it makes sense. But yeah, it's very long. I couldn't read the whole thing. And a lot of people do say like, take it with a grain of salt. It was obviously very biased. Yes. But I mean, like all memoirs are. So but, and like, that's the reason why you read memoirs, honestly, is yeah. to like, get that individual's perspective on a situation. You're not going to get a factual history book. That's not the point of a memoir, though. Right. Yeah. So I still think it's really cool that you're able to hear about like, Marie Antoinette and everything from like her perspective as like someone a part of like the French court scene during that time period. During this last years of her life, she also was quoted by saying before the revolution, women ruled, the revolution dethroned them. Wow. Yeah. And I was kind of like, what the heck? How is that possible? And then if you read about like what kind of happened in Paris with Napoleon and like women being removed from the Academy of Art. Yeah. And then Napoleon was the ruler. And like before that, Marie Antoinette had had a lot more pull and even her dress designer. Like they had so much say in what uh-huh. happened. And then it was just like all gone. That's so, so interesting. Yeah. So she definitely like thought very highly of that the documentary did talk about how like her political views were probably she would have been fine with it remaining the way it was when Marie Antoinette was in power because like it did serve her very well but if not then they think that she would have been like a constitutionalist like monarchist so like she would have wanted like a monarchy but then like also a constitution in place it's like more rules, but still a monarchy. She really benefited from yeah. having a monarchy. Um, so I, it makes sense. Like if your entire career is around painting royal people, you're, you're like, wait, want please don't get rid royals. of the royals. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, as much as we say like, oh, it's so weird. The places still have kings and queens and everything. Like America kind of elects its own monarchy every other year Yeah. I mean, with celebrities. I mean, like, exactly. I think we don't think as highly of our presidents even though they get official portraits done so i mean is it really that different but like <laughs> no no no. but yeah. like america has its own versions of the elites and the people that almost like we put there yes I mean, even just like going back to like the rockefellers and like all the people with like the old money you know what i mean like even i mean at this point like the kardashians really you know <laughs> exactly yeah so it's like we kind of society kind of does that on its own like we set our own monarchies so kind of interesting but that's kind of Vigila Brune she died in Paris on the 30th of March 1842 and she was actually aged 86 wow so yeah incredible how long she lived for the time period and also all of the crap that was happening was say, in like, France the thing she survived yeah. <laughs> yeah so for her to be able to live through all of that like incredible I think that's another reason why her memoir is so valuable like yeah very very few people survived that area of the French Revolution that had close personal ties to royalists yeah and then we're able to write about the whole thing so very very important part of history and per her request her tombstone says here at last I rest wow yep that's cool yeah so that is Vigila Brune. Obviously, she was in many salons and academies throughout her life. They're everywhere. They also had a retrospective exhibition of her work in 1982 at the Kimball Art Museum. 
Uh And there are some of her artworks in the National Gallery of Paris. And I think some of hers are also in the Met and probably the National Portrait Gallery, I would assume. I would imagine. The documentary I watched is actually called The Fabulous Life of Elizabeth Vigila Brune. It was very entertaining. A lot of the people are speaking French. They do translate it. Thank heavens. So (laughs) that was great. It was made for French television originally, but it was great. And she also has been shown a lot in popular culture as like a character in a lot of like the Marie Antoinette stories. Okay, that's so, what I was wondering. Yeah. Yeah. Like there's apparently a historical drama called The Color of Flesh that's like a fictionalized love triangle against the backdrop of the French Revolution. Okay. And she's one of only three characters in this show. Oh. Yeah, so I don't know who the other one is. It's a love triangle, and I'm like, she wasn't in a love triangle with Marie Antoinette, but like, it's fictionalized, so I guess they made her one. <laughs> I don't know. Interesting. And then I also wanted to mention there is a podcaster called History Detective Podcast. Her name is Kelly Chase. I didn't listen to her whole episode, but she actually went on to write a song called Portrait of a Queen last year about Vigie Lebrun. Cool. So you can go listen to that if you would like. I was thinking this whole time that, like, this would be such an amazing movie. Right? Yeah. Like, I'm thinking, like, Netflix limited series. Oh, absolutely. It would be amazing. Like, she had this incredible, incredible life. Yeah. Like, so much potential there. And Yeah. That's what, if I was Reese Witherspoon, or we'll make, we'll be our own versions of Reese Witherspoon, and we'll hire out people and produce the shows slash right? movies. About oh my gosh i would love that because i think <laughs> what's really cool about what reese witherspoon is doing is because she loves the book so much she can yeah. make sure it stays accurate like True. she's able to pass it off and then be like no because i'm producing it you have to do it right yeah and i love that like that's the dream to be able to like make sure things carry the integrity that they have instead of getting ruined <laughs> absolutely yeah i also was gonna say i think we should do a watch party this week and watch the 2006 marie antoinette film directed by sophia coppola i'm so down for that yes i own it on amazon prime sweet so i'm hoping it will just let us do that but you haven't seen that yet have you i haven't seen it no i was just gonna say and i based so much of our podcast branding off of that movie i am obsessed with that movie oh i forgot oh Yeah. yeah that's cool we have so, good. so we have to do a more than a muse watch party if our brand right. is based off of it. So if you're listening to this, like come join our watch party for this movie or just watch it on your own independently. I love that film. I also talked about it in our royal episode that we did. It's incredible. She does so much justice to the story of Marie Antoinette and it stars Kirsten Dunst. Yes. She was like the queen of period films for a while there, like every single like renaissance film she was in it anyway we need to watch that movie so plan on that for this week and even though she's not a character in it elizabeth vigila brune maybe we'll see a glimpse of an artist painting a portrait and that'll be her we'll know it's her yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) well i absolutely adored learning about her so cool i didn't even realize that we were over an hour in so i know this one's a little bit of a longer one but like there was so much information on her and she was so fascinating yeah that is so cool and so many just amazing things so thank you i'm so glad we finally got the chance to cover her Me too. She's been on my list for a long time. 
Amazing. Well, if you're new here, welcome. We're so happy you're here and keep coming back. We have new episodes every Monday where we either talk about another amazing woman from history or I don't know. We talk about all kinds of things relating to women. We do. Should we like talk about what we're doing next week? Like give a little preview? Yeah. Okay. Join us next week for... We are covering Don't Worry Darling, but unlike every other podcast, we're not talking about the behind the scenes drama on set. We're talking about the actual plot of Don't Worry Darling and how it relates back to the feminist novel, The Stepford Wives. They came out in 1975. I watched The Stepford Wives, the 2004 version of it, last night. I'm so excited for this episode. We've been putting in the work here. We have. We have watched so many movies. We have read so many books for this one. Like, it's going to be great. We've been talking about it since December. So definitely come back for that one. Well, thank you again. Leave us a review. Follow us on Instagram, morethanamuse.podcast. And we'll see you next week for, for the episode. Bye. Bye.